Every second that passes, we add four more people to this planet. And that's another eight more mouths to feed right there. And to cope with this growing population, our current food system is still focused on an unsustainable model of production that prioritizes scale. So catering for ourselves and our livestock without always thinking about the long-term effects on our planet. Innovators have turned their attention to more sustainable sources of protein, but they're still coming up against the age-old challenge of continuing to deplete our land and water resources. But a new solution is pushing its way to the market. Algae. Yes, algae. That green, slimy, unknown and perhaps unloved material could help us deal with many of our food systems problems. But how? I'm Matt Eastland and that's the exact question we'll be asking on this episode of the Food Fight podcast. And to guide us through this world of algae, I'm joined by two aquaculture experts to tell us more about this interesting plant. First, I'd like to welcome David Bassett, who's the Secretary General for the European Aquaculture Technology and Innovation Platform. What a title! ETIP is an international non-profit association dedicated to developing, supporting and promoting aquaculture, technology and innovation in Europe. David is also at the forefront of the newest innovations going on in this space, so we're really excited to hear from you on this topic. Thanks for joining us, David. Thank you. And I'm also joined by the founder and chief technology officer of Vaxa, Isaac Berzin. Vaxa are an aquaculture company building indoor LED farms which convert clean energy into omega-3 rich microalgae. And the best part is that the cultivated algae is used for both fish and human food, which is truly amazing. Isaac, it's a pleasure to also have you on the show. Thank you, Matt. As mentioned at the top of the show, we're still figuring out how to feed ourselves and our livestock sustainably. Looking at the research on this, algae has existed for millions of years. So it likes high temperatures, high levels of CO2. It's a global plant. It adapts well to different climates in freshwater, in saltwater. It grows in the desert just as well as in the Arctic Sea. So with all of these positives, why are we only turning our attention to it now? David, maybe if we can start with you. It's an interesting question. And the first thing I would say in response to that is we are often talking now as if algae has only just been discovered and that it's something that's brand new and we've never heard of before. Well, that isn't true. We've been using algae for thousands and thousands of years, long before we had industrial fertilizer, long before we had commercially developed feedstuffs. Algae has been used in the past, as happens with scientific and then industrial progress. We found alternatives to using algae in our own diets, in the diets of our farmed animals and as a fertilizer. And we moved away from using that. We found uh, synthetic products that we could use and we found less labor intensive more cost-effective ways of producing some of the benefits that algae could give us. And we're now in a situation where our knowledge and our understanding and our progression has advanced slightly further, and we realise the benefits to the algae and algae derivative products that we perhaps in the past used to see. That's a very simplistic and very crude way of presenting the broader subject. But I think it's a case of returning to algae, reappreciating algae, reappreciating how we can integrate algae into our food systems approaches on a number of different areas and levels and developing the subject and the questions we're looking at from that starting point. Got it. Thanks, David. That's super useful. And Isaac, do you agree that we're kind of falling back in love with algae? We're rediscovering it as a world? I hear this a lot and people say, algae, we're not sure we're like, it's kind of a weird thing to eat. And basically, if you think about it, we eat it every day. We're just eating it secondhand. For example, the omega-3 you find in fish oils are not produced by the fish. They're produced by the algae and they're accumulated through uh, up the food chain. Right. So you are eating algae-made omega-3 every time you take a bite from your fish, okay? And I think uh, to David's point, I think we're right. If you look at human history, why do you want to grow bananas? That's a lot of work because you ran out of bananas. That's the answer, okay? So as long as you can afford living like a pig, with all due respect to pigs, you're just going to do that. And I think what's happening us to the humankind together 
we took something that's called agriculture. We're converting light energy to products we eat in the most horrific, horrendous way. Why? Because think about the inefficiencies of the system, right? The staple crops, most of what you cultivate, the biomass, okay? For instance, soybeans, what's the percentage of the bean from the total plant material, the stems, the roots, the leaves? It's a single digit. Really? So what? You're wasting all this fertilizer, all the land, all the water to mostly grow garbage? The answer is yes. Why? Because you can afford it. So I think we're, we're at the time in which the reality triggers innovation. And as humankind, that's what we did. We did it several times. If you look at aquaculture, that's a great example. 50 years ago, 5-0, most of the fish were caught in the oceans, on the seas. Today, most of the fish on our plate cultivated by aquaculture. Why? Much easier to go and grab a fish, but guess what? If you're running out of fish, you're going to start to learn how to cultivate them. So I think it's a, it's a very interesting moment in time in which the need is real, so we're taking it seriously. Okay, thank you both. That's very useful as a kind of a context setter. So, I mean, Isaac, maybe this is a really good moment to help define for our listeners, what is algae, microalgae, macroalgae? You know, what is it that people need to know about this? Okay, it's a great question, Matt, because it, it's one word and there's a lot of meaning for it. So we'll make a little bit of an order here. First of all, it's water plants, generally speaking. And by the way, I'm an engineer, so I can be not correct biologically, but I'm going to be practical. Okay. <laughs> So it's water plants. So big water plants are called seaweeds, okay? You can see them in the ocean. Uh, we're not talking about those because nutritionally, it's a poor nutritional content, usually, okay? We're talking about microalgae, which are microscopic. There are few microns in their size and they grow usually by cell division. So there's no roots and stems and leaves. There's a very teeny tiny cell that divides over time. And you can actually find them in a diverse set of conditions. You can find them in, in you know, high salinity places. You can find them in oceans. You can find them in freshwater, lakes, everywhere. So there's a big spectrum. It's a big family. Okay? Mm. I just think we're lacking of words, so we call everything algae. But they look different. If you have a microscope, you'd clearly see different shapes, different colors, different... Uh, uh, some of them are beneficial. Some of them are toxic. It's like saying plants in general. You know, it's a big word. I would only mention that out of the hundreds of thousands of strains existing on the planet, only a handful of algae strains or microalgae strains are allowed for food consumption by humans. So, for example, a known algae strain, it's actually cyanobacteria, but we're going to call it algae to the purpose of this discussion, is the spirulina. Spirulina tried to make a, a splash as a superfood. It is a superfood from the nutritional point of view. But it has other limitations that we can talk about, I hope. But uh, that's one example that people are aware of. The leading example of using microalgae in food, and we'll talk about why you know that was not that successful and what would make it successful. Got it. Okay, thank you. Let's talk about it from a bit of a consumer perspective and how algae is being treated at the moment. So algae and seaweed traditionally valued maybe more in Asian cuisine for its umami taste and its nutritional value. And slowly we're starting obviously to see it appear in Western cuisine as well. So David Etip is dedicated to developing, supporting and promoting technology innovation in the aquaculture sector in Europe, like I said. So what does your understanding of the European aquaculture market tell you about attitudes towards algae? So from a producer's perspective all the way through to consumer, you know, how do people feel about algae at the moment? With regards to market pull, Again, historically, algae is something that has been included in the European diet. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Scotland and seaweed was included in diets there. It was also included in animal feed diets, likewise in Wales, likewise in northern Spain, in Galicia, likewise. So in many different coastal areas, seaweed was something that was included in diets. So it's perhaps a case that we're rediscovering algae, particularly in relation to the nutritional and health benefits associated with the product, as there is a much, now a much greater emphasis on nutrition and health contained within the European diet and aspects looking at that. There are obviously other issues that come into that, but one of the trends we see is an increasing sophistication on the part of a certain uh, percentage of consumers looking at nutritional content of their diet. 
In terms of market pull for the sector, I think, first of all, we have to talk about what market we're talking about. There are a variety of algae-based products. So if you're coming at it from a foodie perspective, you could be talking about dulse flakes as an added ingredient. You could be talking about seaweed burgers. You could be talking about sea grapes. There are actual direct products that people consume. Or you could be talking about derivatives from algae as a nutraceutical, so included in supplements, included in products. It's not really how we might imagine the diet, but you could consider that algae derivatives are used in a number of products. So if you clean your teeth in the morning and certain other pharmaceutical products you use, algae may be included there. Or it could be included as a feed ingredient for cattle or for other ruminant animals. So seaweed is being included there. So we're looking at what market it might be included in. You know, I know that there is a, an EU algae strategy and just from like a policy perspective, you know, do you, what are the ambitions for algae cultivation in Europe? Is it that Europe is really throwing their weight behind algae production? Yes, but at the moment, in terms of a policy context, the promotion of algae and other low trophic species within blue farming, as it's been called, there is a strong policy support for that. And we're delighted to see that. However, policy support is all very well, but there needs to be a market pull in addition to there being a policy level push. Now, certain things need to be put in place in order for that to happen. So the first one, whilst there is a highly educated and informed demographic on this topic, there is also a much wider share of the population that doesn't know very much about this topic at all. They know very little about the farming of fish. They know very little about the farming of shellfish. Their knowledge of fisheries and aquaculture product supply is not very nuanced. So the first area, if you're looking at market pull, is the sort of education and general ocean literacy of consumers and end users of the product. There are also, I would be the first to permit, we can have ambition, but you have to be realistic and you have to be realistic as to what the attitudes of the general public are going to be. And this is something that we don't just see this with algae. We see it in a a broader food systems approach when you're talking about the inclusion, for example, of um, insects in the diet and things like that. When we're looking at these novel areas, is it realistic that all European consumers are going to be eating primary seaweed products, so the seaweed burgers, the ideas I was talking about there, or will the move more be towards products containing elements derived from algae production included within them, or seaweed as a garnish, or seaweed as an added area. So it's understanding what the product might be. And in terms of developing the European market, remembering that there's also an international dimension. So we import, in terms of our aquatic food consumption in the EU, we import between 70 and 80% of our aquatic food, depending on what statistics you, you wish to use and wish to look at. And algae is also included within that international trade balance. So you have to consider economies of scale of production. You have to consider the existing market dynamics that there are. You have to consider what company profiles there are in the production of it. So there are a number of different issues there that feed in to the development and establishment of a European market for product. Thanks, David. Yeah, I think we'll end up talking more about challenges as well in a second with regards to tech and and acceptance. So that's useful because it seems like there's obviously more that needs to be done. Isaac, if I could just come to you for a moment. So you build microalgae farms, which sounds pretty incredible. So where did your actual interest in algae come from originally? Yeah, it's funny. I fell in love with them by mistake, actually. Uh, I was a MIT scientist working on a NASA-sponsored project to cultivate uh, cells aboard the International Space Station. And really? by wow. the algae cell I was working on were algaes. That's how I fell in love with these little creatures. Okay. And the more time I spent with them, the more I admire them. Their ability to convert energy to nutrients is something that's astonishing. This was the beginning. And I started with no white hair and hopefully some wisdom accumulated. So I want to build on what David just explained very truthfully about, and I would like to start with the user experience. 
okay? It's very hard to sell something disgusting, okay? I'm telling you, okay? No matter what the nutritional value is, if your user experience is not positive, it's a very short discussion, okay? On the other hand, if the user experience is superior, then your mind opens to a lot of things, okay? So I think what, what we're trying to do, and again, if you grow algae in open ponds, algae is something that you harvest every day, okay? Unlike other crops you harvest once a season, algae is something that, that's a daily harvest. And every day your uh, growth conditions change, right? The light shines, doesn't shine, you know, a bird then jumps into the water, a pig jump. Every day is an adventure. It's very hard to have consistent quality and consistent taste and user experience as a result of that. So I think there was a technology gap. And once you cross this gap and you have consistent quality around, it opens the door to the following very interesting proposition, value proposition for both customers and food companies. Because again, between us and Algae Farmer and the end user, there's a food producer that has to use the algae-based ingredients into his food. So here comes the interesting news, okay? In Europe and United States as well, and Japan as well, you have allowed claims based on certain percentage of the daily usage of certain many vitamins and minerals, okay? Mm -hmm. So for example, okay, I'm just going to do something crazy. If you eat your pizza, okay, but your pizza contains certain amount of algae spirina-based, you know, per serving in the crust even, okay? Legally, in Europe, you can claim that it's a source of iron or a source of protein or a source of, you know, depends on the configuration, okay? So it's the same pizza, but you just went it from junk food to interesting, healthy, and nutritious food, okay? And if you close your eyes and you have no extra taste, that's unbelievable. So start with the user experience, make it positive, make it wow, amazing, like a blue shake or something unbelievable. If you close your eyes, your senses and your senses will be looking for something that looks like a blue shake, like that's weird, right? So you're gonna try to find the extra taste, you're just not gonna find it. And then if you can attach health and nutritional claims to it, so it's a claim enabling ingredient, that's a world of a difference than what was before. And what enables all of that is consistent year-round quality. Because if you don't have it, let me put it this way, it's very hard to start with stinking algae, okay? That's a hard push. So you can get this consistent year-round algae, which you speak about, and cross that technology gap. What? How is your technology doing this? So it took me a while, I have to tell you, at the time that I'm going to mention, I had the one of the largest algae farms in the world. It, it's still up and running in, in Texas. And I was invited to Iceland. I refused to come for several years until they really kind of, I said, okay, fine, whatever, I'm just gonna visit there and then move on. Only then it dawned on me the potential. I think it's, it's not only European potential. There are many places in the world that you have a vast amount of potential clean energy. It could be hydroelectric, it could be geothermal, it could be many sources. So if you can take this energy and convert it to food, that's super, that's amazing, okay? And if you can do it in a controlled environment, then you get, so there was a technology gap. It took us several years to learn how to do that. It's kind of vertical farming of algae, LED-based, but as long as your light is powered by clean energy, as long as your fertilizers are not produced by energy intensive processes, what you produce is a carbon neutral food. I've never heard about carbon neutral food in my life. Mm. Okay. And I'm not talking, I'm not talking about biomass because guess what? hundred percent of the algae biomass is food. hundred percent. hundred percent. There's no waste. Everything has nutritional value. For example, spirulina. Okay. It came from a very crazy idea to something that, uh, and, and I'll give you some of the feedback. So what did it do to us? And I think it's a very good indication for this. So if you think about it, it's a transition from agriculture-like production of algae to biotech-like production of algae. What happened out of that is long-term contract. We have a 15-year contract with a large European company to buy algae ingredients. This is the first time in the history of algae cultivation that a large food company is giving you 15 years 
offtake agreement. That's crazy. Why? Because you have consistency, because it's a technology play. It's not an agricultural play. The amount of confidence is pretty high. So there is a benefit, there is a carrot to this effort. And again, no one is expected to chew on uh, raw algae. That's not the point. It's like soybean. No one is going to take the beans and chew on them. You have to have a food company between you and the market. You have to have partnerships in the field. Okay, so that's that's to your point, Matt. Thank you. David, bear with me on, on this just for a second. I just want to ask Isaac one last question about, because it's always quite difficult as a listener, I guess, to kind of project yourself into these places. But so Isaac, if if you imagine I've just walked into your plant in Iceland, what am I seeing? What am I hearing? What am I feeling? How big is this? First, what I'm going to take you to a, a chain of uh, health and wellness, uh, uh, I would say sports bars right. in, in Reykjavik. Okay. And we're going to have an amazing blue shake. I'm planning my trip made already. From blue yeah. spirulina. And it's going to taste great. It's going to smell great. And it's going to give you all the vitamins and, and minerals. And it's protein rich. And you're going to be a happy camper. Then we're going to take you 20 minutes out of Reykjavik to one of the largest geothermal power plants in the world. And adjacent to this power plant, you're going to see a closed building. going to go in. And you're going to see something going to look to you like science fiction. It's vertical farming of algaes. It's full of uh, purple light because it's made out of blue and, and mainly blue and, and red, combination of blue and red. So it looks purplish, many bubbling things. And then you're going to see algae coming out of there. It's like a, it's like a cow, you know, like a milking cow. It's continuous production. And then you're going to smell the algae and they're going to smell like nothing. Right. You're going to smell nothing. Okay. So it's a whole different experience. And um, Matt, I promise you, if you measure your happiness level before and after, you're going to see definitely an increase. It's measurable. Amazing. Okay, so you're more than welcome, I David, will. as well. It's not, uh, it's not a Matt-only invitation. It's, I think it's going to blow your mind. <laughs> I, was, yeah. I was about to say, I hope I can come on this trip if I'm included. <laughs> Let's measure our kind of group wellness uh, before we go in. And then I look forward just to even having a blue shake, to be honest. That just sounds amazing. So it will be a, a podcast from Iceland next, folks. Thank you both for that. Uh, really useful to kind of get your stories and your perspective on these things. Let's just stay with the health benefits for a second, because I, I think we're just kind of scratching the surface a little bit. So what would be the main health benefits for consumers of introducing algae into their diet. So we've spoken about, okay, you're not going to be having a pure 100% algae burger. There's a certain amount of realism we need to apply to this, but assuming that consumers, we can get them to embrace this, what is it that they're benefiting from if we introduce algae into the diet? Okay, so I would say that the nutritional benefits, again, the assumption is that the user experience, the taste and the smell are super amazing, okay? I think, uh, what happening is we're looking into um, decreasing our beef and meat consumption, okay, because of the environmental issues with beef cultivation. So what, what's going to happen to you, Matt, if you're going to reduce the, your hamburger consumption by X percent, 20 percent, for example, okay? What's lacking, okay, what you're going to find very hard to get from alternative or kind of non-plant-based sources would be actually two things. One would be essential amino acids. Essential amino acids are those building blocks of protein that our body cannot produce. You have to consume them from external sources, okay? So complete essential amino acid is something very uh, rare in the plant kingdom. So you're gonna have some of them lacking. The second thing is bioavailable iron. Iron is, is very important for human function. And iron and, and meat, basically beef, is a very useful source for bioavailable iron. So the good news is, although, for example, spirulina is very high in protein, it's over 70% protein, it's not about the quantity of protein. It's about the fact that this is complete essential amino acid source, which is like, oh my God, okay? And then the amount of iron of bioavailable iron which actually is more bioavailable than iron coming from beef is significant okay so i see a huge value of telling someone listen the way to reduce your beef consumption is don't look something that looks like meat because i can make a piece of plastic look like steak and good luck that's not a meat substitute meat substitute is something that has a nutritional value okay 
So that's the point, okay? Don't give me something that pretends to be meat, okay? Give me something that looks completely different. Give me a blue shake, but I can measure, I'm a scientist, I can measure the essential amino acids, I can measure the iron, I can measure the bioavailability of the iron, I can tell you, Matt, if you reduce 20% of your meat consumption and you use this as an alternative, nothing bad is going to happen to you. And it's even tasty. Okay. That's the message. Okay, got it. So with all that in mind then, you know, so David, how do we translate that to consumers? You know, because it just, I mean, everything I'm hearing is, well, firstly, it's blowing my mind, but how do we make sure that consumers in Europe and beyond are going to be ready to embrace this? And, you know, how do we get those health benefits across to them? Well, how do we get, not even consumers, how do we get industry to embrace it? It's been said before, education, education and education is the basic way. And certainly for consumers, I, I don't say this in any pejorative sense, but the level of ignorance about our general food consumption is high. Many consumers do not know the source of their products. And by this, I'm talking about milk coming from a cow or meat products on sale coming from certain animals. We have a disconnection between food that we buy and the source of what that is. So often in the world of aquaculture, we're talking to the already converted, as it were, because we're within our own bubble in our sector. And we need to remember that to the vast majority of citizens, the word aquaculture, they're probably not that sure what it means. Never mind the fact that it's talking about fish and shellfish and algae and, and, and the whole aquatic food production sector. So we have to improve the communication of what algae is, where it fits in to a food systems approach, and what those health and nutritional benefits of the product are. Now, there will be some sectors of society that are already engaging in that, and that's where we're seeing the growth and, and development of the sector as it already is, and particularly with the current emphasis on plant-based diets and the nutritional issues arising from plant-based diets. Well, algae answers and can address many of those um, issues and, and, and many of those points. That sector of society, that market, that interest will continue to develop and grow in any case. But if we're trying to broaden it out, and if we're trying to have a more um, wide-scale increase in production, then we will require both targeting primary consumers, but also approaching retailers, chefs, people who, um, influencers, mood influencers, and those sorts of groups. There's, there's a whole campaign to work on there and improving generic ocean and food literacy from children up, you know, start young and educate people more into their diet. And with the general commitments that have been given, at least nominally to sustainability, to environment, to climate, to plant-based um, issues. That is a general trend that we're witnessing and we need to capitalize and build on that in terms of, of promoting the sector. So, I mean, this kind of flips us nicely into kind of the sustainability side of this. So staying with you then, David, you know, do you believe that algae cultivation can offer a, like a genuine solution to some of the environmental challenges we face, particularly in the food system? Yes, I definitely believe that there is a strong place for algae within the broader aquatic and, and blue farming production. That isn't only linked to the immediate outputs and products from algae cultivation, but the very exercise of farming algae can bring significant environmental and social benefit as well, be that in terms of algae acting as a carbon sink, be that as uh, in terms of algae acting to help support habitat conservation or diversification uh, within the aquatic environment. We often talk in the aquaculture sector now, there's increasing emphasis on IMPTA, integrated multi-trophic aquaculture, and there's a way how algae can operate along with other low trophic species in balance with higher trophic species. Also, if we then want to broaden it even further, integrating with other water users, but you know, marine renewable energy and so on and so forth, looking at an integrated multi-use varied 
blue economy sector. So there are many ways in, in, in which algae can operate and help drive the sustainability agenda, in addition to being a primary food source, in addition to being an animal food source, in addition to many of the key commercially viable products and high value products that are being produced. So uh, here we're talking about the pharmaceuticals, the nutraceuticals, the PUFA, long chain ingredients, things like that, that Algate is involved in as well. Thanks, David. So Isaac, from a sustainability perspective, you know, how sustainable is algae from your side? And I, I guess I'd be interested as well to get your views on how this can be used in like as fish feed, for example. Does that have a real sustainability benefit too? So first of all, I can tell you as a scientist that algae is very misleading. Okay, I'll tell you why. Because it's true that it's a carbon sink. And actually, for each ton of, uh, of algae produced dry weight, you consume the two tons of CO2 stoichiometrically, okay? The question now is how much energy and how much CO2 you created by uh, feeding them, okay? So then uh, you have to look at two things. First is your energy usage and where the energy is coming from. You have pumps, you have to bubble air, you have compressors, you have all kinds of activities, lights, okay? Where does this come from? And then you have to look at the fertilizers. If you're using uh, energy-intensive ammonia-based fertilizers, so if you do the total math, remember two tons per ton is what you absorbed. 70, 70 is what you emitted because of the energy you consumed if it's not clean and because of the fertilizers you used that's not environmentally produced, okay? So the answer to your question, Matt, depends how you cultivate them. Another example, you can actually grow algae on sugar in the dark. It's called fermentation. You just use sugar as a carbon source. But then you have to tell me how many tons of sugar have you used to create one ton of algae? Mm. And where's the sugar coming from? And how much water and land and fertilizers and, and, and pesticides were used to cultivate the sugar? And the result is horrific. Right. Okay. So it really depends on the manufacturing technology. And I'll tell you, uh, I've tried it all. And I've did the math on all of them. It's very tricky. And I think on the, I'll give you one example just to, to tell how tricky this is. You grow marine algae in a brackish pond, okay? And you say, great, it's brackish. I use brackish water. Yeah, but it, it's in the middle of the desert and there's huge evaporation. Mm -hmm. So if you want to maintain a certain salinity level in your pond, guess what you have to put in? Fresh water, right? Because fresh water evaporates, not the salt. So you do grow algae in a brackish pond, but you are the worst camel in the world because you drink all this water okay so it's very tricky and misleading so that's something i think that legislators have to put this in mind and look for a life cycle analysis of different cultivation technologies because not every algae that looks the same is carrying the same environmental uh, characteristics not at all okay so that's that's something that that hopefully answers your question but the benefits are beyond carbon. You just have to understand. It's about land usage, water usage, if it's a closed system, and also no pesticides or herbicides usage. That's huge. Okay, so, so the environmental benefits are quantitable, but they're lovely. Absolutely. Fab. Thanks, Isaac. And I mean, it seems like there are, as you say, huge benefits, but there are limitations here. And I think we kind of harked back to the earlier conversation we talked about, you know, how realistic is it to go big with algae? I mean, David, you know, who are the main EU algae producers, you know, if you know, and what is it that you're hearing? What is it that people want to make sure that they can cultivate algae in the best possible way? It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because algae is, is everywhere we look at the moment, or at least in our world, in, 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 in the meetings and conversations <laughs> we're having. It's everywhere we look. It's one of the most popular, positive images of blue farming mm. that there is. And there's only really a positive press and, 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 and the groundswell behind it. So why is there not algae everywhere we're looking? And why mm. one of the common industry questions we would have across our members, across all of the EU member states, and including Norway and the UK as well, is why is there not more traction in the sector? And why are we not seeing an increase in the growth and production that you would expect to be seeing, given the high-level support that's been given and initiatives such as the European Commission EU for Algae strategy? Well, there are a number of things we need to look at from there. 
the first one, as is uh, the case with everything to do with aquaculture, is access to sites and planning and licensing. So there is a competition for aquatic resources. And uh, not that algae isn't also, there's lots of obviously land-based production as well. But um, from a marine perspective, you have to consider where it's actually going to be done, mindful of the fact that there are other water users. For ocean production, then you would need to consider ocean modelling to identify the potentially most productive sea areas to, to look at where you're doing it. Moving away from the practicalities of location and site and licensing and permissions to do it, there is a requirement for market-led growth as a requirement for investment in the sector. So you actually need to be demonstrating to be so crudely commercial that there is money to be made from doing this and that, that the market is going to be there. We have to acknowledge that EU production is within a global market. The majority of algae is produced elsewhere in the world that's currently um, used in our sector. And we have to remember that global trade and those economies of scale. If we're looking at low trophic aquaculture, we have to think how that's going to be balanced in with existing high trophic aquaculture and other users. And we need to get to a point where we look beyond what is technically possible. So there have been many demonstration projects and interactions with other water users, with renewable energy, with other sectors. We need to move beyond what is technically possible to what is technically and commercially possible and viable mm -hmm. in order for that to develop. And there are things that may affect that. So yes, the products, um, you know, we're aware of them when we know what we are, but for example, in microalgae production, there's a very high energy demand that can be related to that. In terms of optimising the scale of production, you need to look at seeding and operation and harvesting. You need to look at increased mechanisation. You need to look at more automised solutions. At the moment, it, 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 the sector isn't at that level. So there are some practical and cost-based issues there. In terms of aquaculture production historically, in national aquaculture plans and strategies, that's focused on finfish and shellfish um, or mollusk mm -hmm. production. Uh, and we would need to look at building algae into that and being used. Now that's happening. And we see through organizations like IABA, the European Algae Biomass Association, there's the EU for Algae Strategy. It's been included in the European Commission Horizon Europe Research Framework Strategy as a priority area for research. So there are all sorts of areas where it's being included, but we need to look at joining up some of that thinking in order for things to be developed. And a final observation I would make, potentially, at least in this stage in the cycle, the need for incentivization into the diversification into algae production or the inclusion of algae production. So, as I said earlier, what is technically possible might not be enough. We might need to look at some sort of commercial incentivization to get things going. Yeah. And here we're talking about issues like environmental offsetting measures or tax breaks and incentives, ways of encouraging companies that maybe currently are not producing or using algae to include it within their production. And in the same way in terrestrial farming, you could see rewilding being used as one way of sort of offsetting terrestrial um, agricultural production. There is a similar balance that could be struck with algae as well. So there's a number of different tools and, and areas that we could look at working with to help promote and, and develop that sector. Amazing. Thanks, David. And I can see Isaac, while you've been talking, just nodding along. And I, just briefly, Isaac, I'm, I'm interested from your side, given that you are doing this and it's obviously at a certain scale that's working, what challenges are you facing? And I guess what would make your life easier to try and you know increase your scale of production and multiply your plants, et cetera, et cetera? So I'll continue. I think David reflected the reality in a brilliant way. That's exactly the, the challenges. But uh, even if you you can demonstrate a scalable technology and you can demonstrate access to market. In the end of the day, it's a large capital investment. You need to build a new industry, okay? Mm. So access to capital is, is, is one of the limiting factors. And I think David is correct. If you can combine the environmental value that you bring, for example, your carbon credits, right? 
if carbon credits from algae would be allowed, I'll give you the, we just talked about the equivalence between beef meat and algae, certain algae strains, right? If you can actually equalize and say, look, one kilo of algae is, or specific algae equals nutritionally, it equals one kilogram of beef, okay? So if it's a beef replacement, it could be a blue shake, okay? But the nutritional value is the same. Then why can't you get the carbon credit because you're replacing beef? right? Beef is a hundred kilo of CO2 per kilogram of beef, okay? So you grow one kilogram of algae and you get a hundred kilograms of CO2 equivalent credit. CO2 credit is something you can sell. You can sell 10 years up front. So that is a mechanism to sponsor your capital investment that you have to do. So my point is I want to build on what David said and I want to suggest actually a, a practical solution that will allow you, again, it's measurable, you need to show me that you're carbon negative. You need to show me that your nutrition value is there. But if the answer is yes to both, then they should be included in the capitrate mechanisms of Europe. Because I'm telling you, that's a reasonable way to sponsor the rollout. Otherwise, if you have to include return on investment in your spreadsheets beyond the, the operational profit, it's very hard. Yeah. Okay, so lots of potential limitations here, but you know, Isaac, thank you for offering up one potentially very practical, very valuable solution. Both of you, thank you very much. I mean, we're we're actually coming to the end of the show now, so I I'd like to kind of wrap up just with a, a last couple of questions, if that's all right. So I'm interested particularly now, and uh, where you both expect the algae market to be in the next five to ten years. So David, I'd be interested in where you think this will be from you know the aquaculture sector's perspective and and Isaac I'm also interested from your perspective where where do you think you'll be and where do you think this market will be so David maybe let's start with you five to ten years time how big will algae be I never like to answer questions with specific numeric parameters or tar or target setting. Um, okay, in the future. Uh, in the future, um, I, I can find it sometimes unhelpful to give it to get, so say we will have X number of tons or we will have X sure. value of the sector. I don't necessarily like to to put metrics and parameters and like that. So, in the immediate short term. What we are seeing is the greater inclusion of algae within the European policy context for developing a sustainable European aquaculture to 2030. And we see that with um, the strategic guidelines for European aquaculture, and we see that in the blue economy communication. There's a clear commitment um, to the development of algae. How that actually, how successful that is and how effective we all are in our conjoint work to try and deliver that inclusive approach remains to be seen. But in the immediate short term, that's something that's been worked on, as is continuing research into the development of the sector within initiatives like the Horizon Framework Strategy. So there's ongoing research. There's ongoing technical innovation, there's ongoing development of production expertise, and there is an ongoing promotion of the desire to increase the sector. Relatively easily, additional measures to incentivize the industry could be there with carbon credits, with tax credits, with things. It would be relatively simple to dovetail and integrate these into the aquaculture development strategies that we're also talking about. And that's something that certainly my organization and others will, will continue to talk on. Innovation isn't purely scientific or technical. Innovation can also be economic. Innovation can be in education. Innovation could be in consumer education. There's a number of, number of other social areas where we need to consider innovation within the sector. Mm -hmm. And all of those are measures and, and steps that are in action. I cannot predict what the commercial application of that will be, as that's for individual investors, for their backers, for their risk profilers, those are their questions. But there will certainly, with current commitments to environmental and sustainability targets, everything is right to continue the development of the sector. And with current consumer and certainly informed consumer wants and demands, everything is right to continue to develop the market. So I would expect to see a significant growth 
but I'm reluctant to put a number on that, but uh, in terms of economic value, but certainly exponential growth in the sector in the short to midterm is likely. Perfect. Thanks, David. And, and excuse the pun, Isaac, but do you expect to see exponential growth of algae in the next five to 10 years? And where do you expect Vaxa to be? You know, I'm not objective, right? But uh, nevertheless, <laughs> I, nevertheless, really? I'm going to give you a scientific approach because I have a research group. It's called my kids. So I have three daughters that are from the ages of 30 to 17. And uh, I can see how, and again, David, right. We're talking about food innovation here, okay? Mm-hmm. And customer demand, okay? So I can see how excited they get because it feels different to them. Actually, you know, in contrary to, things that that they want to be like fake meat, right? They want to pretend to be something that's known. Actually, as a representative of the young generation, I can see they're excited about something that looks different. Mm. Don't pretend to be a steak, be different, be who you are. And I can can have have a lot of the hopes from the actually young generation that they kind of get it and it's cool and it's tasty and that builds a brand. So, that's my hope. My hope is the young generation uh, would just feel it's right, taste it's right, smell it's right, and they would be the propelled forces to propel it forward. Because many times I've seen the traditional industry, they want to talk about change. They want to be involved in something you can call, but really they want to keep business as usual. Change is risk. It's unknown. It's right. So you have to have, as David rightly said, the consumer demand. You have to have it there. And um, yeah, listen, we've witnessed uh, changes in our life, right? I remember w- the world without iPhones or without, you know, we've, we've seen it in our lifetime. So why can't we have it in food? Absolutely. Okay, so the final question, based on what you've just said, let's try and sell this then. So in one sentence, is algae the new superfood and why? You know, if you were to sell this, Isaac, what would you say? So first of all, delicious. You enjoy having them. It's colorful and blows your mind. Secondly, it's beyond protein. Although it's a it's a basket of full essential amino acids, there are vitamins and minerals. So on the nutritional level, it's compared to nothing, nothing else, especially from the plant kingdom. And you know exactly where it's coming from. It's not shady. You know exactly what's coming from. You can measure how, how sustainable it is. So you can eat something with a lot of confidence. Wouldn't you want to have your food coming from a place that uh, is a GMP facility rather than a field that is using who knows what? And, and okay, so I think the, the, the confidence level is different in what you eat. So I think there are many good reasons to think differently about food. Thanks, Isaac. So sustainable, healthy, and production process transparent, it seems to be the benefits. And David, what would you say? Is algae the new superfood and why? Yes, I think algae, but rather than being the new superfood, uh, the first thing I would say, as I said right at the beginning, I think what we're actually doing is rediscovering the benefits of something that we've overlooked for far too long. I think the health and nutritional and taste advantages of the product are clear and demonstrable, to me at any rate. It's a product I like. Without being too conceited, I would like to think of myself as one of the informed consumers of aquatic food products. And I do consume algae in a variety of different ways. And I think perhaps less as a marketing strapline, but as a concept to consider in a world where we're continually discussing sustainability, but we don't really have a definition of what sustainability might mean, but it's a word we do like to use. If any product is going to score highly on being able to demonstrate it's a sustainable product, I think algae products are there. And where we're going to see a trend emerging in the future where the products we consume are certified and judged against their life cycle analysis and their product environmental footprint. We're already beginning to see LCA and PEF scores being represented in products. And whilst the criteria for measuring that and demonstrating that are varied, and some people will dispute them and argue them, across the board, algae products will continue to score highly and will be able to, with much more confidence, claim a sustainability title than certain other products in our supply chain.
and I have every confidence in the continuing development and expansion of the sector for that reason. What a fantastic way to finish. Thank you for that, David. That's great. And thank you both for everything that we've been discussing today. Fascinating area. Definitely one that I'm going to be looking more at. I cannot wait to taste the blue shake. So Isaac, take you up on that. Thank you both for all your contributions today. Where can listeners go to find out more information about what you do? Isaac, where can people find out more about uh, you and your company? So if you go to uh, actually two websites, you can go to the company website, which is called vaxa.life. You can see some images of how this thing looks like and feels like. And if you want to try some of the products, uh, it's already some of them are launched in the US. So you can go to orlonutrition.com and there you can see our brand of uh, omega-3 based products and also uh, immunity boost products made from a spirulina actually so you can give that a try and more to come fantastic thanks isaac david what about yourself where can people find out more about you if you wish to find out more about etip the organizational website is www.etip.eu but in the spirit of a multi-stakeholder platform which is what we are i will also give you two other points of reference that would be interesting i think to listeners and to this podcast and people who are interested in algae production the first is to look up again both online iaba the european algae biomass association and you'll find lots of information there and the second is to look up the eu4 algae forum that's eu number 4 algae forum and you'll find out um, some of the cross-cutting work that a number of my organizations a number of organizations including my own including iaba including individual producers are all collaborating in that algae forum so those are three links i would encourage people to look up fantastic thanks david so that just leaves me to say a big thank you to isaac and david and thank you all for listening in this has been the food fight podcast as ever if you'd like to find out more head over to the EIT Food website at www.eitfood.eu and please also join the conversation via the hashtag EITFoodFight on our Twitter channel at EITFood. And don't forget to hit that follow button so you never miss an episode. Thanks, everybody. Mm-hmm.